I want to point out just what great skills Brother Luke had in, in the way that he brought together this gospel for us. The composition of this book is amazing to me. He drew from different sources as he gathered all this information about Jesus' life. Luke was a, a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the 12 disciples. He didn't get to walk with Jesus as, uh, as so many of the other um, writers did. But he was diligent to go and seek firsthand accounts from those who knew the man personally and who loved him and were loved by him. And you see a great, a great symmetry in his gospel. We've seen so many times where Jesus will teach something and Luke will include it in the story of Jesus' life. But there might be room for somebody to misinterpret it or to misunderstand it. And just a few verses later, you'll see how Luke includes another story or another parable or another teaching that balances out the first and gives you the full understanding of what Jesus was trying to accomplish. And that's what we're going to get an example of today. In Luke chapter 18, a couple weeks ago, in verses 18 through 23, we saw an example of a man who we called him the rich young ruler. He was a wealthy young man who came to Jesus and he was seeking to find out from Jesus how he could obtain eternal life. This man wanted to go to heaven. He wanted to live forever with the Lord God. And so he asked Jesus what he needed to do to accomplish that. And uh, we, we saw as that scripture unfolded that this man had been diligent to follow the word of God, the Old Testament that he had from his youth. He was faithful to God's scripture. He had followed the commandments. He honored God in his actions. And so Jesus uh, decides that he's just got one more thing he needs to do, and he gives him a personal command. He gives a, a, very, a very unique command to this man. He says, here's the last thing you need to do then. You need to sell all that you have. You need to give it to the poor, and you need to leave that life behind and come and follow me. And this man who desired eternal life stopped in his tracks and became sad. He was downtrodden because he realized that the one thing that Jesus was requiring from him he could not give up. There was something that he loved more than God. He was not willing to sell all his, his goods and leave that behind and come and follow Jesus because the things that he thought he owned had ownership over him. They had more sway in his life than the Lord God did. We might be tempted in reading a passage of Scripture like that to think that God perhaps only loves those who are poor. As we see the struggles of a rich man who is grappling with his allegiance to money instead of his allegiance to the Lord God, we might make the mistake of saying, well, geez, I guess the gospel is only for poor people, simple folks, folks who are not wealthy and, and well-to-do. And we would be making a mistake if we thought that way. And so today we're going to have an example of a rich man who comes to Jesus in the, in the story of a man named Zacchaeus. And so if you've got your scripture open today to Luke chapter 19, we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 4. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. We've been noticing that many of the stories that we read in Luke are also contained in the other Gospels. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and His history of living here on earth. And many times one of the stories that Luke contains will also be in Mark or also be in Matthew or also be in John. And some of the details are a little different in one story than another. And by looking at all those stories together, we get a more full picture of what the Lord wants us to know. 
Well, this particular story is different than that because it only exists in Luke. Luke decides to give us this story. And along with stories like the healing of the blind man and the healing of the lepers, these stories represent Luke, Luke's emphasis on the acceptance of the rejected. Jesus cared for those who were often pushed away. From time to time, though, we need to be reminded that heaven will not only be filled with ex-prostitutes and ex-murderers and ex-addicts and ex-adulterers. Jesus will redeem from all walks of life. He will not overlook the poor or the widow or the powerless, but neither will He fail to show compassion to the rich, to the intelligent, to the charismatic, and to the competent. Zacchaeus is a man who seems to straddle both of those polar extremes. He's achieved incredible financial success. He has a position of influence and power, and yet Zacchaeus is a man who is contending with some very tangible limitations. First of all, we see the most obvious, this might be the lowest hanging fruit we eat today, he is physically limited by the fact that he is short. He's a short of stature kind of man. I can relate to that growing up. I, I often was saddened by the fact that I was vertically challenged. I remember, this is my mom in second row here, and I remember going to her one time after a tough day at kindergarten and saying, Mom, she's like, why are you so sad? Why did we have to be midgets? I just thought we were midgets. I was picked on in the playground, and nobody wanted to have me on their team, and so I, I, felt, I felt dejected. So I know what it's like to be a little bit short, a little bit uh, vertically challenged, and here we're seeing the, the real ramifications of that in Zacchaeus' life. He... Uh, ironically, he was a man of, of great power. In fact, many of his fellow Jewish people there in Jericho probably feared him because of his position. We're going to talk a little bit more length about what his job was in just a moment. They probably feared him. He had a lot of influence in the community. In many ways, he probably figuratively looked down on the people in that crowd. But literally, he couldn't see over them. So Zacchaeus is limited by his height. He is determined however, to find a way to get a glimpse of Jesus Christ. His resourcefulness leads him to shimmy up the branches of a sycamore tree. Sycamore trees are pretty common to this area, actually. I spent a lot of my young life in Livermore, and they have a park out there called Sycamore Grove, and I used to climb trees out there all the time. They've got the kind of branches that make it easy to get up into the, the body of the tree. And so Zacchaeus climbs up that sycamore tree to get a clear view of this man Jesus from Nazareth. I remember when I was in Sunday school as a little kid, there was a song that we used to sing about Zacchaeus and how he was a wee little man. And the emphasis in those classes was always put on the fact that Zacchaeus was short. Uh, I, I, perhaps that's because we think, well, you know what, here's a short guy. Jesus loved him. You're all children. That means you short. Z Jesus can love you too. And that's all I really remembered about the story of Zacchaeus as a little guy, that he was, he was short. But that wasn't the only problem that he was facing. That was not his only limitation. He is also socially limited by his occupation. Because of what he did for a living, it was difficult for Zacchaeus to find connection with others. Remember back in chapter 18, just a few weeks ago, in verses 9 through 14, Jesus pointed out uh, two prayers in the temple. One was a Pharisee, who was a dignified man, and he prayed proudly before God. And then the other one was a tax collector, a lowly man who was looked down upon by his fellow Jewish people, and he didn't even feel himself worthy to be in the temple praising the Lord and praying to Him. And through that passage of Scripture, uh, 
Luke, and, and by way of Jesus' story, was reminding us that the Jewish people looked down on tax collectors. They thought low of them because these men were Jewish by heritage, but they were employed by Rome, this empire that had oppressed the Jews and was controlling their territories. And so they would go into their communities and they would enforce the laws of Rome by bringing out taxes and, and making sure that these Jewish people paid tribute to Caesar, often demanding more of their neighbors than they really needed to so that they could fill their own pro uh, pockets. Now this man Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he is a chief tax collector. That means that he is one of the ones who organizes the other tax collectors. It's very likely, uh, we, we read from some other historical sources that often Rome would employ one man who would sell the contracts of tax collecting out to different people in a region and he became a very influential person who could demand a lot of money. If you wanted to be a tax collector because you knew you could profit from it, you had to come and give that chief tax collector uh, a tribute so that you could get that job. So this man likely has a lot of money and a lot of influence. Now ironically, the name Zacchaeus is Hebrew in origin and it means pure or righteous. But we learn that his countrymen see him as anything but pure and righteous. Because of his job, they see him as a traitor. He is a filth to them. They think so little of him that when Jesus begins to show favor to Zacchaeus, it stains the way they look at Jesus. They begin to look down on Jesus because Jesus cared about this little man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Now the crowds are no doubt hostile towards Zacchaeus and they hold it against Jesus when he becomes friends to this man. I want you to consider kind of what's going on in the picture of this scene where Jesus of Nazareth enters a town and there's a buzz around this man. People have heard of his stories. they heard of the great things that he did in other regions. And so everyone swarms to see him. And Zacchaeus, who is normally the man who knocks on your door and demands your money, who normally you try to avoid because he's got the power, now he's running along the edge trying to see over you. You think those people were apt to let him in to get a peek of Jesus? He might have had power over them financially, but in this situation, you can imagine they're probably elbowing him out of the way. They're not going to give him any chance to see Jesus if they can. It's the one way they can push their power over him. And that's why he has to run and climb a tree to get a view of this Savior because the people around him hated him. They didn't care for him at all. Now there's a third way that Zacchaeus is limited, not just by his height, not just by his occupation, but he is also spiritually limited by his wealth. By his wealth. We generally think of greater wealth as being a blessing to people. Often folks pray that God would multiply their finances, would give them a better job so that they could have more financial freedom. But the aforementioned parable that we spoke of where we, noticed a <clears throat> where we noticed a rich young ruler who was unwilling to give up his finances to follow after Christ taught us an important lesson that we should be skeptical of the power of wealth. That we should realize that wealth can be an inhibiting factor to our faith. It can blind us spiritually. The wealthy must often fight an uphill battle to accept Jesus on faith because they are so competent in matters of money that they don't feel the need to rely on Jesus every hour of every day. We come to Jesus with humble hearts or we don't come to Jesus at all. And those who are financially comfortable are prone to put more faith in their own abilities because of the weight of their sin is not as obvious to them. They don't see the hurt of their sin so much because 
they can comfort themselves with the luxuries of wealth. And so this temporary blessing of riches can often act as a spiritual handicap in their life that keeps them from seeing their need to trust in the Savior. Jesus just a few verses ago said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But as we will see in this tax collector of Jericho today in his life, what limits man does not limit God. Jesus is about to prove to us that Zacchaeus' conversion, through Zacchaeus' conversion, that redemption of a rich man is not impossible for Jesus. So this man Zacchaeus has his limits, but he does not shy away from the challenges they present in his life. The man we spoke about last week in, in Luke 18 was limited by his blindness. Do you remember that? He could not see, and so we sang a song just a few moments ago commemorating the, the event that, that that scripture talks about. He could not see Jesus, so he couldn't get up and go to him. He couldn't reach out and grab him, so what did he do? He didn't let his blindness limit him. He shouted at the top of his lungs, Son of David, have mercy on me. He shouted until Jesus heard his voice and came and addressed him. So too, Zacchaeus is not going to be limited by these things that keep him back in society. He's not going to be limited socially. He's not going to let his small stature keep him from seeing Jesus. So he runs forward and hopes to put together a plan that will allow him to get a glimpse, a look at this Savior that everyone's talking about. Now remember, this is a chief tax collector. This is a man who strikes fear into the hearts of other Jewish people, a man of influence, and he's scrambling up the trees like a kid. That would be like some CEO of a major company that we know today climbing up a tree to get a look at a celebrity who's driving by. It would seem ridiculous, but it was, it was something that Zacchaeus was willing to do because he knew that Jesus was so unique, he desired greatly to have some kind of contact with this man. And so in, in Luke 19, verses 5 through 7, we read, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from there for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, and he came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they, meaning the crowds, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus looks at this man Zacchaeus in the tree, he acknowledges him, and he says, I must stay at your house today. He's revealing that God had a plan for Jesus as he ministered through Jericho, and part of that plan involved coming in contact with this man that everyone was rejecting so that Jesus might show him acceptable before the Lord. The other residents of Jericho, if they were asked, you know, who should I stay with while I'm in Jericho? They would have probably said, well, there's one guy you need to avoid, and that's Zacchaeus. The last guy they would want Jesus to connect with was this man that they saw as a traitor. And yet Jesus says, I must stay with you. <clears throat> I have no doubt that Jesus knew this controversial public association with this man is going to cost him popularity points with those residents who lived in Jericho. Yet saving Zacchaeus was important to him. And so we begin to notice here a shift in the way the crowds saw Jesus. For many chapters we've read confrontation after confrontation where Jesus would go to a place, he would preach the gospel, and by and large he would have people who pressed against him, who opposed him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the lawyers, they often felt intimidated by Jesus. They often were skeptical of him. They often saw him as a threat to their influence. And so they pushed back against Jesus. 
But we, we normally notice that the crowds, <clears throat> the normal folks in a city, were for Jesus. They were excited about the things that he was doing. They liked him. They approved of him. While the religious elite did not approve of Jesus. Here as Jesus is approaching the final stages of his ministry and entering into Jerusalem, we begin to see a subtle shift. Where the crowds, though they loved Jesus for a time and he was entertaining to them and, and they loved to hear the news that he would bring, they begin to start to sour upon Jesus. They begin to think of him in a different way. We read that, that the crowds were grumbling when they saw him approach Zacchaeus. And they weren't grumbling about Zacchaeus. They began to grumble about Jesus showing favor to Zacchaeus. The allure is beginning to wear off on this Jesus because now he's showing care and consideration to people that the Jewish people of that town thought was an enemy. Well, we don't like him, and we don't want you to like him either. By grumbling, they're not just speaking about how terrible Zacchaeus is. They're beginning to attribute the hatred that they had for that little man to Jesus, who would stop and share a meal with him and experience fellowship with that man. And so Jesus is not the, the darling of public opinion that he used to be. Now, uh, as a short kid growing up, I was never good at basketball. So basketball's not been really my sport. But lately, if you live in the Bay Area, you can't help but be a fan of the Golden State Warriors, can you? The Golden State Warriors is a team that, just a few short years ago, they, they weren't really a, a winning team. They weren't a team that was a serious contention for a championship. But their, their fans were loyal. They stuck by their side. And for years, they just put up with losing seasons. But uh, just, just recently, ownership made some drastic changes. They fired a, 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 the head coach, who a lot of people liked. They traded away a player that folks thought were, was going to be a cornerstone of the team for years to come. They made some tough decisions. And as a result of that, this team that used to be the, the adorable underdog suddenly had this MVP, Steph Curry, who by NBA standards is a short man. But suddenly, he's the best shooter in the league. And out of nowhere, the Golden State Warriors become... NBA champions. And for a short amount of time, everybody loved the Warriors. It seemed like everybody in the country was like, oh, the Warriors are great. But after a while, they started realizing these Warriors are beating their favorite teams. The Warriors are beating our favorite team. They're keeping us out of the playoffs. And so that little honeymoon period of, oh, look at this great underdog team, quickly went away. Then they signed Durant, and they started destroying everybody. And now, anywhere else in the country you go, people are loving to hate Golden State Warriors. You don't feel it here because the hometown vibe is still alive. But everywhere else, that shine has worn off. And they went from loving the adorable Golden State Warriors to just can't stand those guys. The tendency of man to react without really thinking things through means that as Jesus is novel and popular and favorable for a time, eventually people start listening to his sermons. They start taking to heart the things that he said, and they realize, he's preaching about me. He's preaching about my sin. He's demanding that I repent and that I change and that I come before the Lord God humble. Wait a minute, I, I like the miracles, I like the sign, but when he starts getting into my business, I don't know that I'm all actually for this Jesus. So the more the, the true message of the gospel begins to come through to people, the more they realize he's not just a sideshow. He's the chosen one of God, and he's calling for change. Not just in Rome, not just in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but in the hearts of every man who has sinned against God. This Jesus has not come to earth to be all things for all people. He came to do the will of God, and the will of God 
is to confront sin. I think the crowds maybe endorsed Jesus for a while because he was against the Pharisees, and secretly, they were jealous of the Pharisees. They couldn't perform like them. These were the big shots, the, the holy people. It made them feel little to be around these Pharisees. So when Jesus associated with them and stood up to the Pharisees, who in many ways were hypocritical, they, li they liked Jesus for a time, but now they're realizing that his messages are, they go beyond the Pharisees. They go to every person in Israel and even beyond Israel who has sinned against the Lord God. I want you to open your scriptures to the Old Testament for a moment. Would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 5? Joshua chapter 5. I'll bring you up to speed on where we're at here in Joshua 5. This passage is recounting a really interesting encounter that Israel had just before they entered into the Holy Land in Canaan to receive that promise that had been made to Moses after God had used Moses to bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and to set them free. When we join the story, God's people has been, have been wandering for about 40 years. After God saved them from slavery, they were not model citizens. They did not exactly do what the Lord had called them to do. They were disobedient. And so God said, you will wander for a time. And for 40 years, they wandered as the older generation that was disobedient and unfaithful to the Lord slowly died off. By the time we enter the story here in Joshua 5, Moses has passed away. The nation has had a second reading of the law. They have reiterated uh, the promises that God made to Israel and the covenants they had agreed to follow with him, what we call Deuteronomy, literally means the second telling of the law. And so they're, they've prepared the people to enter into this new land with a renewed commitment to following the covenants that Moses had made earlier with them. Joshua, who is Moses' assistant, is now leading the way. And uh, they, have, they have marched through the River Jordan. God miraculously parted the waters, evoking the history of Israel when God had parted the Red Sea 40 years earlier to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And so they're preparing to enter into this promised land and the first city that they are going to come and take by force is Jericho. The very city that Jesus is in right now. And Zacchaeus is up in a tree in Jericho as we read in Luke chapter 19. So these two, these two uh, passages of Scripture are connected geographically. Uh, as Joshua and Israel travel along the road, and as they enter uh, the vicinity where the city of Jericho is, they encounter a man. Without a doubt, there's a very real fear in the hearts of the people. There's excitement for what God's about to do. They're not sure how he's going to pull this off. They're not really a warring people. They don't have a, a history of warfare, yet God has promised that if they are faithful, he will fight through them. And as they journey, they come into contact with a man on the road, a mysterious man. And so let's look at Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him, and his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? So think about, real quick, pause for a second, think about what's happening here. Joshua is the, the head of, or the, head of uh, the Jewish people, they're moving towards their destiny. They're going to go take Jericho. And they, they, they see this man who has his sword drawn. He looks to be a man of war. And Joshua boldly says, Are you for us or are you against us? Do we need to strike you down because you're standing in between us and our destiny? Or are you on our side? And here's what the man says in verse 14. And he said, No. 
No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshipped, and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What a humbling exercise here. Joshua and the nation of Israel were so focused on the way God's plan was going to bless them and bring them great resources and, and a place of their own that it began to be to them their mission. Are you for us or are you against us? And this heavenly being who had come to interrupt their progress was there to remind them that this was not about them as much as it was about the Lord God himself. He says, no, I'm not for you or against you. I'm here to serve the Lord God. Now, there's a word called theophany. You're not going to hear it a whole lot, but a theophany is a physical appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's kind of a preview of Jesus before he was born of Mary and took on flesh. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is part of who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. So Jesus has always existed. We don't see Him spoken of by name in the Old Testament, but yet He was there. And there are moments in Scripture where we can argue this is perhaps Jesus appearing to the people to reveal some part of God's plan to them even before He was born in that little town of Bethlehem so many years later. Now the reason I believe this is a theophany, an appearance of Jesus, I have two good reasons why. First of all, he calls himself the commander of the Lord's army. Who is the commander of the Lord's army? Jesus Christ is the commander of the Lord's army. He's going to come back one day riding a white horse and leading battle against evil who, who he will destroy and punish once and for eternity. So Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army. He's not just a commander. He doesn't call himself one of the Lord's generals. He says he's the commander of the Lord's army. Secondly, the people reacted by bowing to him in a worshipful and reverent way. Anywhere else in Scripture where you see a human being encounter an angel and they fall to worship that angel, how does the, the angel respond? Get up off the ground. Do not worship us. That's only for the Lord God. We see it in Revelation chapter 19 where John is taken up into the throne room of heaven and he sees an amazing vision and God is delivering picture after picture of what's to come and this angel flies forward and appears to John and John is so taken up by this angelic creature that he falls on his face in worship to that creature and this creature in Revelation 9.10 says do not do that I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers to the testimony of Jesus Christ he tells him to get up and so this, this man that Joshua and the Israelites encounter on the way to Jericho does not say whoa 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 stop rise he allows these men to bow and worship to him because they didn't know it, likely at the time, but the true God was standing before them. Here's the point. This is why I share this story. The crowds had seen Jesus. They had heard him teach. They had watched him produce sign after sign that proved his unique power was from God. And at first, they hoped that this Jesus was going to be on their side. They hoped that he would accomplish the will they had for Israel, that he would strike down Rome and push them out of the lands that belonged rightfully to the Jews, that they would put a king on the throne again, that they would make them independent 
so that they wouldn't be the laughing stock of nations, but they would once again be a mighty power in the Middle East and throughout the world. And yet God had bigger plans than that. God had not just come to finish their will and see it be done. He came to serve the Lord God, to do the will of the Father. And so in a sense, Jesus, when He comes into these cities, is saying to them, I am not for you or against you. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come to do His will. And His will included extending loving grace to Zacchaeus, this person that the city of Jericho had decided didn't deserve it. So Jesus is no longer the darling to the public that He used to be. But then again, that was never His goal, was it? Jesus cared about the will of one being, and that is God the Father. So I hope you notice here that Jesus does not suffer from the common human affliction of self-doubt that we so often suffer from. He's on the last stretch of His ministry. He has ministered for three years. The, the whole time He's known that He was heading to the city of David. He was going to eventually end up in Jerusalem so that He could give His life as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would trust in Him. And Jesus knows that He is almost there. Jericho is just 15 miles away from Jerusalem. At one day's walk, He's almost where He needs to be. A regular person like me or you might think, man, I've come so far. I've been through so much. I better, I better play it safe now. I better take it easy and not do anything that's going to stir up trouble or make people think less of me. I don't want to associate myself with the Zacchaeus because people hate him here. I know that, so I, I probably should just play it safe. But no, that's not what he does. Jesus does what he came to do, to seek and to save the lost. Even those who by association will make the, the crowds of people think less of him. We need to ask ourselves, do we have this kind of boldness? Jesus has saved us not just for our sake, but for His mission. Do we have a boldness that is willing to follow God's plan and to do what He wants us to do, regardless of how the crowds are going to take it, regardless of how public opinion will be of us? Are we bold enough to, to speak the gospel to the, the stranger we meet on the street? Are we bold enough to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ with that person in line at the grocery store, with that co-worker at work? Are we willing to say what we believe? even if it's going to make people look down upon us. I've been uh, blessed to be the coach of a Little League team for the last few weeks through the Junior Giants. And you know, that's a tough thing for an Oakland A's fan to do. But the Junior Giants are going to bless my kids for free, and I'll, I'll help them out too. So I've been coaching a little five- to six-year-old team, and we're about done with the season. I, I found myself at the end of our last game yesterday on Saturday thinking, I've only got like one more game left with these parents, and who have I reached for Jesus? Have I, been, have I been timid in sharing my faith with them because this isn't a Christian baseball league? Have I been unwilling to just be transparent about what's important to me, Jesus Christ, about what my life is all about? Have I let it just be about baseball with these parents and with these kids? Perhaps I need to learn from this example of Jesus' boldness that even though the people didn't like Zacchaeus and they wanted to reject him, that he was going to love him anyway, maybe I need to be more bold for the Lord God as He has sent me out on mission, as He has put me in places where He can use me to affect the lives of others, have I been timid? Jesus was not timid. He wasn't concerned about losing the favor of this crowd. And Zacchaeus never had the favor of the crowd to begin with, so he doesn't care. He hurries to Jesus. He receives Him joyfully. He's, he's happy to have this invitation to come and, and be a host to Jesus in His ministry. And in Luke 19, verse 8, it says, 
Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus makes two promises in light of the grace that Jesus has shown him. First of all, he says, half of my goods I give to the poor. And we might be jaded by this and say, well, he's one of the wealthiest guys in Jericho, likely. So if he gave away half of his wealth, he'd still be a wealthy man, big deal. Which would not really be fair to him. Think about what kind of an impact it would have on anybody to give away half of what they own. This is going to have an undeniable impact on this man's life. What a bold promise to make that he was going to sell half of all his possessions when Jesus had not asked him to sell any of it. It's not like the rich young ruler where Jesus told him to sell the whole thing. That's not a command for everybody. This man is willingly saying, listen, in light of what you have done to show me grace today, I am going to give up half of my wealth that I have spent years amassing and I'm going to not just squander it, I'm going to use it to bless the poor. I'm going to use it to bless others who feel rejected like perhaps I do right now. The second thing that he promises to do, he says, if I have defrauded anyone, I will pay back fourfold from my own resources that which I defrauded from them. If you look back in Leviticus and in Numbers, the Old Testament law, the Hebrews were responsible. If they had defrauded someone and it became proof that, that they had treated somebody poorly in business, then they were required to pay back 100% of what they defrauded plus 20%. So if I stole $100 from you, Alan, through bad business practices, I would have to give you $120 back in order to be in compliance with the law. Yet here Zacchaeus is voluntarily saying, I'll pay back $400 to that person that I have defrauded $100 from. You think he's serious about his new desire to follow after Jesus Christ? He's making some pretty serious claims here. Now there is a question of interpretation. Some people look at this passage of Scripture and they say, wait a minute, is Zacchaeus in saying these things that he will do, is he saying what he's actually done in the past? Is he just giving us a report of why he's a holy guy and a righteous guy? Or is he telling us that he's committing to turning over a new leaf in the present? The grammar actually would support both of those readings if you were to go back to the original language, the Greek. You could read it either way, but the text makes the meaning clear. The context shows us that Zacchaeus is turning over a new leaf. We see that because he's giving away half of his possessions. Now, if somebody was doing this regularly, how do you give away half of your possessions regularly? Each time you did that, you'd be halving what you own, and it would be only a matter of days before you had nothing to give at all. It makes more sense that this is a one-time thing, that God has made a huge impact on him today, and so he's saying, because of what you have done, Christ, I am going to give half of my goods as of right now, everything that I own. The, the, the word that is used there is not his income, it's his possessions. It's everything that he has accumulated over time. Secondly, if, when he says that he'll repay back those who he has defrauded, if he's saying, this is what I do normally. When I defraud somebody, I pay them back four times. And he's essentially admitting to defrauding people regularly, right? That's not very godly at all. So it doesn't make sense that he's saying this is what he normally does. He is saying, listen, in, in light of this new encounter I've had with Christ, I am repentant. And I'm willing to go back and look at the records and see if I did anyone wrong. And if I did, I'll give you back money. I will, I will make it right. Knowing what I know now, I don't want to do what I did then. 
You also see the use of two very important directing words here. In verse 8, he says, Behold. And in verse 9, Jesus says, Today. So, behold, this is a new thing, and today salvation has come to this household. So this would indicate that this is something transformational, something radical that has happened. It's not just Zacchaeus coming to brag about what he has done in the past, to show why all these, these people in the crowd are foolishly rejecting me when I've done all these great things. That's not what Zacchaeus is doing. He's committing himself to a new way of life. And finally, we have to ask ourselves, if this man is already saved, if he's just talking about the good things he's already done, then the words of Jesus in verse 10 would really have no meaning. Why would Jesus say, I came to seek and save the lost, if he's not showing us an example of a lost man being saved in that very instance? You see, friends, we need to understand this story as another in a line of conversion experiences. Just a few verses ago, Jesus restored a man's sight and he said, your faith has saved you. Jesus came to Jericho to seek and save a lost Zacchaeus, not to vindicate a righteous Zacchaeus in front of the crowds that did not like him. Salvation has come to this house. Again, verse 9, And Jesus said to him, today, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I want us to take a second as we close to really consider what this term son of Abraham means. What is that referring to? The Apostle Paul, later on in the New Testament, is going to differentiate for us between two types of the son of Abraham, two understandings. There's a correct understanding and a false understanding. Look at Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. This passage will be on the screen for you if you don't want to turn there. The Apostle Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel. What's he saying there? He's saying that not everybody who has genetic Israelite blood flowing through their veins can be considered real Israelites. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring of Abraham. Listen, when, when the Lord God promised Abraham and Rachel, even though they were or far along in age, that they would have a child of their own to carry on their name and to carry on their bloodline. In fact, he promised Abraham, he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. They at first laughed at God. They didn't see how it was possible. They were far too old to be rearing children. And over some time, they waited and they didn't see that promise fulfilled. And so Abraham did what so many foolish men do, and he tried to take matters into his own hands. And he took a concubine to himself, a younger woman, and he lay with her and had a son with her, and that child's name was Ishmael. God corrected Abraham and called him out for a lack of faith and said, this is not indeed the child of promise that I was telling you about. I planned to fulfill this covenant with you through your own offspring. And so Ishmael and this false wife were sent away and Rebekah, this old woman, Rachel, this old woman, became with child and bore a son to him. That son was Isaac. So even though Ishmael was genetically a part of Abraham's bloodline, God said that is not a child of faith, that is a child of faithlessness. The true bloodline is going to go through Isaac because this is a child of faith. 
Friends, if we want to be accounted as part of God's people, it's not about your DNA. It's not about whether you're Jewish or not. It's whether or not you trust in the Lord God who has called out a, a people to be His chosen group. The Apostle Paul differentiates between two types of sons of Abraham. One would be sons of Abraham by blood, by genetics. The other would be sons of Abraham by faith. And Paul is warning his Roman readers that not every ethnically Jewish person was safe because many of those ethnically Jewish brothers of his did not actually believe in the Lord God to the degree that they were surrendering to Him, that they were putting their full faith and trust in the Lord God. So here's Zacchaeus. Though rejected by the children of the flesh, these men who consider themselves true sons and daughters of Abraham, is called by the head of the family, by Jesus Christ, a true son of the flesh. Why? Not because he was more genetically Jewish than anybody else, but because he had the faith that so many of these ethnic Jewish people were lacking at that time. For the last several chapters, we have seen Jesus warn Israel again and again that they cannot rest their hope in their bloodline. They need to put their faith and trust in God's Messiah whom He had sent. Through bringing redemption to several specific individuals over the last few chapters, Jesus is answering that question, what does a person need to do in order to be saved? We've seen several different stories that are fleshing out this understanding, and I just want to, I wanted to recap that today as we close. First of all, what do you need to be saved? You need to be a sinner, first of all, right? In order to be saved, you need to be in trouble. You need to be saved from what you got yourself into. And as you ask yourself that question, am I a sinner? I can answer it for you because the Scripture tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So who needs a Savior? Everyone in this room needs a Savior. Because each one of us have ignored the law of God. Each one of us have broken the law of God knowing that it was not what we should do. Against our conscience, we have done what was wrong. So you must be a sinner in order to be saved. Now many people don't realize they are sinners or they won't admit the fact that they are sinners. They like to see the sins in others as this crowd of Israelites was seeing the sin in Zacchaeus, but they don't want to see the sin that is in their own lives. And so when God grabs you and says, Son, daughter, you have sin, and there's no way you can walk away from this. You've got to take care of this right now. He's doing us a favor. He's opening our eyes to a truth that we would rather ignore. And in doing so, He's saving us from the destruction that comes from living in sin against the Lord God. So first of all, you've got to be a savior. Second, or a sinner. Secondly, you've got to be repentant. That sin that you have lived with You've got to get to a point in your life where you cannot stand to let it be a part of who you are anymore. When God reveals His holiness and His purity and shows you what a great and amazing being He is, and you see your sin and you see that your sin keeps you far from Him, that you can't be close to this God because you are filthy and He is pure, you are wretched and He is holy, then your heart must start to see the need to turn away from that wretchedness that used to define you and to go towards the Lord God with a repentant heart, a heart that confesses your sin, a, a heart that acknowledges your failures and your faults. And this doesn't mean just being sorry. A lot of people are sorry about the things that they did and they keep on doing them. It means having a heart like Zacchaeus's heart, a heart that says, I have done what is wrong, and here today I'm giving half of my wealth away. I am going to repay all the people that I see I have done wrong things to because my repentance is not just theoretical, it's actual, it is real. The sinner who is repentant 
is on their way to salvation, but there's another thing that you need before you can experience God's saving power. You need to be chosen. You need to be chosen. God chose to save Isaac's line. God chose to stop and pick Zacchaeus out from a group of tons of countrymen to have this man be connected and affected by his grace and his mercy and his love. If we hope to be saved, friends, then God's got to do a work against our own heart. Because every one of us sins, and every one of us is happy to go on sinning until the Lord God takes our blindness and gives us sight so that we can see our sin for what it is. When our heart of stone is by the Holy Spirit softened in a miraculous way and turned into a heart of flesh, it is only then that we can begin to see for the first time how ugly our sin really is. That we can begin to feel uncomfortable about it. God has got to shake us awake. We can't open our own eyes and cure our blindness as we sang earlier. Now, you might ask yourself, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? I don't have a list. It's not been published in the scripture. But I would ask you this question. Are you compelled to walk forward in faith in Jesus Christ? Because there is no greater proof in the world that you are chosen than if you feel the need to follow him in faith right here and right now. And we can't, we can't just close our eyes to the fact that God is going to make this choosing apparent to us through the force of our own will. Everyone I say, share the gospel with has got to make a choice to follow or to reject what Jesus Christ is giving to us, this difficult gospel that offends us and ruffles our feathers. We've got to be willing to say, God, I'm, I'm coming to terms with the truth. Yes, I acknowledge it. And if you've been willing and able to do that, then you're showing that God has chosen you for salvation. So you've got to be a sinner who is repentant, who by the choosing, the choosing of Jesus Christ has gotten his hard heart softened before the Lord. And then ultimately, you've got to come to see that your salvation is really about Him, not just about you. I hope that you grab hold of this truth today. Ultimately, God has come to save sinners. But it's not only so that we might be blessed and have abundance of resources and be saved from a bad life. God has saved us. We will be blessed in that process, but He has come to save us for His glory. He made mankind in His image so that we would bear His glory to the rest of the creation, that we might reflect His goodness, so that we might learn to, to appreciate Him more and, and be a picture of different aspects of God's perfection in our lives. And so God is going to save you, but not just for you. He's going to save you for Him. He's got a mission in this world that He wants to accomplish. And He wants to accomplish it through those who trust in Him with repentant hearts and say, Lord God, here I am. I am filthy and I can do nothing to save myself. Take this broken life and fix it and use it for Your glory. I don't know how many brothers and sisters that I have counseled who are going through deep depressions, who are dissatisfied with life, who have not experienced contentment for years, and the reason they aren't feeling joy and they're not feeling that completion is because their Christianity is really more about them than it's about Jesus. They become so caught up in their own failures or victories, in, the, in God's giving of their, their, their uh, requests and, and blessing them with, with the things that they want or not blessing them the things that they want, that they have come to desire comfort for themselves rather than desiring to see the Lord's will done in their lives. When we can humble ourselves and come before the Lord God and say, Lord God, here I am, use me 
however you want, we begin to find ourselves experiencing a peace and a joy because our life is now something bigger than ourselves. And we don't have to get caught up in every little thing that goes wrong. We don't have to be devastated every time a trial comes or a sickness hits us or we lose our job or we have a friend who, who no longer loves us. We don't have to be devastated by those things when Christ is what matters most. To be a true son of Abraham, you must be a child of the promise. You must be a man after the heart of God. You must believe in and place your trust in Him because He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and there is no salvation in any other. And if He has redeemed you, He has done it for His glory and for your good. Let's bow our heads and close with a word of prayer as we prepare for the, the end of our service. Lord God, we thank you for being a God who is mighty and a God who does not tell us lies, Lord. There is no hypocrisy in you. And so when we open your word, you're going to tell us the truth. You're not just going to tell us what we want to hear, Lord God. You're not interesting. You're not interested in winning any polls, Lord. If the whole world says no to you, you are still God on high. You do not need us to be a glorified God. But because of your loving mercy, you have called us to you. You have called us to come and experience your grace. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the strength to, to see ourselves for what we really are, Lord God. Lay us bare before you today. I pray, God, that you would not let us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. I pray that you would not let us get so caught up in our own story that we forget that you are the main character of this history, this, this creation that you have made, Lord God. You are redeeming it by your Son, Jesus Christ, and through His powerful work. And you have called us to be a part of that story, Lord God. When we put our faith and trust in you, we come to experience salvation through Jesus Christ. Our sins are washed away, and we are now able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to be useful for you. And I pray, God, that you would put us to good use. We love you, Lord, and we ask that the word would continue to be our anchor, that it would be that foundation upon which our lives are built. And I pray, Lord God, that we would not put our hope and trust in any other than in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we say that these things through his holy and precious name. Please be with us this week as we depart. In the name of Jesus. Amen.